0: You're listening to the Cars of Carlisle Network, podcast episode number 144, featuring the first in a series about American Motors Corporation, with crew members Lou Giannacopoulos and Sam Farringer. Remember, this is your podcast. Together, it's all about car community, car culture. Cars of Carlisle is your favorite internationally downloaded podcast about all things automotive. Darren and his C of C team are ever searching for interesting automotive happenings, real stories about real car people, and fun features to inform and entertain you. Each week, the Cars of Carlisle crew brings you show topics ranging from car shows, to team adventures, to auto racing weekends, to behind-the-scenes human interest stories from car nuts that live across town, across the country, or even across the globe. Come join the road trip.
1: Today, Sam and Lou dive into a series of introcasts
0: dedicated to an automobile company that aspired to join the big three. Come along as the guys discuss American Motors Corporation and elements including its unique
1: merger and acquisition strategy, its role in creating what will become the SUV, and even its successful household appliance division. Part one of this series will outline the history behind some of the most iconic cars AMC produced. So let's get wrapped up.
0: Hello and welcome back, cubers, to your favorite informative automotive podcast. I am your trusted host, Darren. As always, we so enjoy having you join us again this week. In just a few minutes, we'll be handing the keys over to the young guns on the CFC crew for this intracast installment featuring American Motors Part One. But first, Have you subscribed to Cars of Carlisle? If not, you're missing out. It is the best way to have this podcast queued and ready for you each Tuesday evening or Wednesday morning, depending from which continent you enjoy Cars of Carlisle. So during this episode, why not subscribe on your favorite podcast app or platform, the one you're on right now? Also, have you rated us five stars, written a positive review, or shared the CFC podcast with any of your car buddies? If you haven't, we'd love it if you did thank you in advance for doing that and it's never too late to be part of the team let's make that happen thank you all in advance would like to take a minute here to say thank you to our exclusive OEM sponsor of the Cars of Carlisle Network and that is Porsche Mechanicsburg our friends at Porsche Mechanicsburg they are located at 6625 Carlisle Pike in the brand new state-of-the-art Porsche Center and it's just a few minutes to the east If you are anywhere in central Pennsylvania or within this area of Maryland, Virginia, uh, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, you ought to check out Porsche Mechanicsburg. They are a team of incredible professionals. In fact, they have been part of the Faulkner Auto Group since 1932 and they are about excellence in everything that they do so if you are in the market for a new or pre-owned Porsche why not talk to the experts and professionals at Porsche Mechanicsburg if you're considering a Porsche 718 a 911 a Panamera a Macan a Cayenne a Tacan they will make sure you get into the right vehicle check out Porsche Mechanicsburg the trivia question that the fellows gave to me this week, I'll share that with you, and it is, Roy Chapin Jr. took over as CEO of AMC in the year 1967. What company did Roy's father help co-found that eventually merged into AMC? That answer awaits at the end of this episode. So without further ado, it is time to throw the keys to our crew members and colleagues, Sam Lou. Gentlemen, start your engines and take it away.
2: Thank you, Darren, for the introduction. And today, Sam, we are going to do something that we've tried before, just with a different topic, covering an entire company's genesis from beautiful napkin dream to the American trials and tribulations of the peaks and the valleys. We're going to take step by step through the decades of a company. And that company is American Motors Corporation. AMC for short. Similar to Studebaker, we're going to try and cover 70 years of history plus in one episode. But we're going to break this one into two,
1: correct? Yeah, yeah, a little bit different on this one. Um, It's kind of hard to talk that long about the history and kind of interweave cars. So what we're going to do is this first episode, we're going to go over all of the history from the, the rise to the fall of AMC. And then in the second part of this episode, uh, which will come out at a later date, uh, it'll be our next one in the series, though, we're going to go into some of those famous cars. We're going to talk about the Javelin, the Gremlin, the AMX, the we'll touch on it a little bit today, but the impact on the Jeep, uh, all sorts of things like that. Probably get more into the Rambler than we do here, um, but, you know, just This one will be an overview of the business, and before we get into it, uh, even talking to Lou over the past couple weeks, and even today before we started recording, Lou doesn't seem to care for AMC as a company, so Lou, do you want to talk about your feelings on AMC? (laughs) I'm
2: just going to read my first note from the Word doc. Lou note, woof. What a terrible company! I mean, honestly, when did many when did this many mergers ever lead to a successful business endeavor? Okay, anyway. Yeah, no, I'm I'm not a fan. I mean, I I'm a fan of certain cars. Certainly, you got to give them credit for saving Jeep as a a consumer brand as well as the development of the four liter engine, which is like my favorite engine ever in Best terms of reliability. Higher. Yeah, they're fantastic. The inline four is awesome. I don't even know what if we we'll Yeah, exactly the two five. I have no idea if we'll get to that today. We'll see how no, far. No, we we'll
1: go. probably talk about that more in depth on the second episode. Um, because again, yeah, that's one of both Lou and I's favorite engines ever made. Um, reliable, built tough. It's they last forever. They're bulletproof. You can run them out of oil and they still run. You know, three hundred thousand miles is nothing to them. So. Exactly. Right. Little off topic, so, but.
2: Yeah, I mean. I- That's kind of what we do. We tangent, and then we may or may not circle back to the original topic or question. Who really knows? But we have to start right. It's not like AMC. It's not Ford. One guy didn't just create AMC in 1954. It started uh, with a merger between Hudson, which ran from 1909 to 1954. Certainly the fabulous Hudson Hornet, or if you're a fan of cars, Doc comes to mind. The movie Cars, not. Cars, cars.
1: <laughs> I think if they were fans of cars, they'd already be listening. So,
2: tangent aside. All right, so we're we're the first paragraph in, and we've tangented. Anyway, from there, the Hudson history, which again, company 1909 to 1990, 1954, ended up merging with Nash Kelvinator in May of 1954. Nash Kelvinator, which at first I thought was made up. That's another note was a company run from 1937 to 1954. So Nash Motors, which we're familiar with the Nash brand, uh, and Kelvinator, which was an appliance company, Uh, just literally made cool fridges and other type (laughs) of household appliances. They merged to become AMC. Uh, A guy by the name of George Mason oversaw all of this, who was previously... The um CEO, I guess, the president, whatever you want to call him, of Nash Calvinator approached the leadership at Hudson, who were not very successful at the time. It was certainly, you got to look at, at back then, right, in the 50s. You had General Motors, you had Ford, you had Chrysler, and then you had Independence A through Z. I mean,
1: yeah, then you had your small ones, your Studebakers, your Packers, Kaiser. Uh... Hudson and Nash fall in there, even though those are probably even smaller yet. Um,
2: Just crazy. Like it wasn't like it is today where you have the American big three, you have, you know, the Japanese cars and the cars German. from Korea like Hyundai, Kia, yeah, the German. It, it was literally in the United States, it was the big three, small, mid sized manufacturers. That's it. So Mason decides hey, I think we can create a big four. My brainchild here is we'll start with Hudson and Nash. We're still going to produce Kelvinator fridges, which is still crazy that they why not? There. man? it's like Sears, like
1: it's such uh, a cool name. Why would you want to you know kill that line off?
2: I think back in the day you could buy could you buy Nash from Sears? You could buy a vehicle through Sears. I don't I, I didn't look this up, but it did come up in my search. Uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter. What they did essentially, like I said, start with Nash. Start with Hudson. There's two brands. We're gonna take that merger, and eventually we are going to acquire some of the other smaller companies, the Studebakers, the Packards, Kaiser, etc., to create a complete lineup like GM had with Cadillac, Buick, Oldsmobile, Pontiac, with Ford having Lincoln, Ford, Mercury as well. Oh, yeah. And then Edsel was 58, I believe, somewhere around there. Uh, and Chrysler, you know, Dodge, DeSoto. Um, Plymouth what am I missing
1: Plymouth Chrysler Dodge Soto yeah good enough now Jeep right well yes but not before AMC
2: mm-hmm. literally rode that company into a successful sale that's the only reason they that they were able to sell off to, in uh, the 90s to Chrysler but or I Which, guess I should say the 80s
1: well you got to think about it. it's not on the surface it doesn't look like a terrible idea because you're essentially these small companies were having an issue keeping up with the big three, mainly due to not having the production capacity, uh, the you know, the amount of facilities to even produce the cars, let alone the dealership networks that your big three are gonna have. So you gotta think if you're combining, you know, ultimately four to eight smaller companies and combining resources. Uh, however, it didn't quite work out like that because it's not, it's not that easy. I mean, you obviously have to do a lot and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, but a lot was switching production lines over to match the same cars. Um, you have to completely revamp all of your dealership network. Like it's not as easy as it sounds. I mean, it sounds like it, it could work, but I mean, it's AMC, it didn't work. So,
2: and I'm periodically probably going to crush leadership here, uh, throughout this entire podcast, but George Mason definitely had the right vision. There was nothing incorrect about what he was trying to do and even how he was going to methodically accomplish it. So, for example, yes, Nash and Hudson merging first. What's the actual first official merger? However, he spoke to uh, the president of Packer, James J. Nance, all the way back to the late 40s about this exact vision, how he's going to accomplish it going to loop Packard in as the the luxury flagship to compete with like a Cadillac or a, um, a Lincoln DeSoto. I don't know what Chrysler's number one was. Probably the Chrysler 300. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Who cares? Didn't happen. So unfortunately, unless am I missing anything prior to 1954? I mean, we're literally just at the merger. I know, but
1: nope. That's That covers everything up to the merger now. I mean, now we get into the meat and potatoes of it.
2: Yeah, and it, it all falls apart as soon as they merge. Uh, unfortunately, Mr. Mason dies unexpectedly in 1954 having to leave George Romney to take over. And George Romney... I don't know too much about him. I said it's Mitt Romney's grandfather. That's not true. Just read that note. It's <laughs> totally made up. I Again, I had a lot of fun doing this. Um, he kind of says, you, you know, hey, George, appreciate the effort, but screw it. We're We're not going to do anything that you're talking about. We are just going to produce small cars, compact cars, fuel efficient cars. There is no big, no more. He also said, there's no way we're merging the companies. We're going to get rid of Nash and Hudson's names after 1957. And we're just going to go forward with the Rambler and the Metropolitan. So if you take Mason's plan, you have Hudson, Nash, eventually Packard and Studebaker, which we know Studebaker folds right around this time frame. Well, I guess they made it into the mid sixties, but still, you know, within 10 years, that's really not a lot. You're, Company is probably struggling mightily prior to your actual day of final production. So, Mason's ideas on paper probably would have worked out if he was able to, to fulfill them and carry on out. But not saying Mr. Romney did anything wrong, he just basically wiped all prior tooling, wiped the nameplates. Like Hudson is still a really iconic name in American automobile history. Nash, eh, it certainly has its foothold. Like, if you go to a car show, that's of any size. There's a decent chance you'll see a Nash. Uh, Doesn't matter. I'd say there's probably more of a chance to see a Nash than a Hudson. True. Would not disagree. But he takes them both, proceeds forward with the Rambler Metropolitan, and really it it goes fairly well. I mean, they're selling cars. I don't know if I would necessarily say that Mr. Romney is the reason for that, but –
1: Well, they're kind of selling cars. So uh, we talked about the company was formed May 1st of 1954. Their first year of production, uh, which that fiscal year ended September 30th of 54, sales were down 42% from the previous year of the separate operations. So if they had never merged, they would have done 42% better individually than merging. Uh, In that first year, they lost over a million dollars just flat out, which again, we're talking 1954. That's a heck of a lot of money. Over the next three years, sales volume declined by about 25%. And up till 1956, they reported 29 million in losses. So they really, yeah, they were selling cars, but they weren't making any money. And, you know, part of this has to do with the fact that up until this time, they were producing both Nash and Hudson at the same time. So they're producing two different cars, still selling them
2: as well as running an appliance company.
1: Yeah. And trying to get to a single unified, you know, car, which they still had yet to have for three years. Um, they were borrowing money from like everybody. Banks were literally not lending to them. They barely had enough to maintain like working capital. Um, that publicly the company was saying, Hey, we don't know if we're going to make it past 57. I get your point though again. Well, and one last part to that. So the goal here was trying to become the big four, right? They would have had a better chance at this time. If Hudson and Nash had stayed separate, because I think at that point they had like between the two of them, they had like 4% of the market share of all domestic vehicles with their merger the amc dropped down to less than two percent of the market share so there's you are now one of the lowest of the low uh independent small car companies you're not even close to being the big three and then i don't know what the exact number was but there was talk that to keep the company afloat and i believe in 56 and 57 the entire executive board had to take 29 uh, percent pay cuts, but they elected to. So they believed in the company. They did it voluntarily um, just to even maintain money to operate the business. I mean, that's how bad off they were. Now, we'll get into it here, uh, but they do start making a comeback here. But th- that the first three years of AMC were dire, uh, even publicly by the company said they were dire.
2: So your numbers, then, you take us right to the end of their fiscal for 56, and we're picking up right around 1957, when, again, Mason dies in 1954. Hudson dies in 1957 as a nameplate, as well as Nash. Mitt Romney's grandfather, George, introduces the Rambler in Metropolitan. Doesn't go well at first, but at the turn of the century a.k.a. the turn of the decade, because we're only at 1960, things are going pretty well. If you just take Rambler as a brand, it is the third most popular U.S. auto brand behind Ford and Chevy. And Romney, taking after his future grandson, starts to pursue politics around this time based on his popularity with the Rambler, who eventually steps down in 1962 and the company is taken over by Mr. Roy Abernathy, who really should be credited for the success of the Rambler. It's all him. He's the design guy. He's leading a lot of charge from um, like a, a vision standpoint right, and strategy and, and finding the marketplace with these two particular cars. What am I missing there?
1: Well, just briefly to talk about the numbers, since I delved into how absolutely horrible they did. Uh, numbers, guy in 58 just to show like how quickly that swing was. So in 57 they were down 29 million. In 58 they were up 25 million in profit. In 59 they were up 105 million dollars in profit and stayed steady through most of the early 60s. So it's just kind of crazy how quickly that they could make that shift and you know with all that profit they repaid all their loans to the banks. Uh, so they could actually extend their credit, get more money to be able to roll into production. And they had gone – they had tripled to I think it was about 6 or 7% of the market share. So they were down below 2% in the late 50s um, – well, I'm sorry, 54 to 57. By 1960, they had gotten up to about 6% 6 or 7%, become a profitable company and uh, actually had some life in this company. So that leads us. Right there to, to Abernathy.
2: Yeah, but just before that, if you look at 1957, the start of something good for AMC, at least in theory, again, only being three years in. Can you name me the most famous song from 1957? No. It's uh, All Shook Up by Elvis Presley. Which also, <laughs> speaking of shakeup, the Soviet Union launched Sputnik, which really was a, a major turning point in the space race. A popular movie might be 12 Angry Men. A Burger King Whopper, 37 cents. And your average life expectancy, Sam, for a male would be 66.4 years. So, anyway.
1: Anyway. So, 1957, with the uh, – part of the reason that we saw such a huge shift in you know, their profitability, their market share, was like you mentioned earlier, is that was the year – that they stopped producing the Nash-Hudson bodies. So, well, try to make this make sense. Of what we knew. Yeah, so they produced the same body. I believe it was actually a Hudson body uh, that they ended up using. And again, that's when they started focusing on the Rambler. So both production facilities now were making the same cars, same parts. And they pretty much cut everything down. There was no other models per se. So there was like the Rambler, the Rambler ambassador, the Rambler American, but you didn't have a ton of other options. The company itself really just wanted to make a basic economy level car that was small, that was, uh, you know, affordable. And that was essentially like roomy and, you know, had some creature comforts. And I just pulled this one quote from Romney because I just thought it was such a weird quote so i want to before we move on from him uh, i believe he said this in 56 there will be a small percentage of mechanized dinosaurs in the american driveways of the future however if you still want them we've got them build a better way our dinosaurs are smoother safer and roomier yeah i mean so it's a guy who's grew, like he's like cars. He grew up in die. the appliance era yeah and he's still he's like well i'll sell them to you anyway uh,
2: <laughs> but i mean he also you know sometimes companies are only as successful as their second best in charge. with Abernathy, and especially once Romney is gone in sixty two, the company does start to succeed in and like create a an actual stronghold, right? So if we fast forward, he takes over in sixty two and after two the first two model years sixty three and sixty four, they're just like you said, producing those compact economy, appliances really i mean that's how they're being looked at internally they're not super stylish they're, they're not a bad looking car but they're not a a cadillac with giant fins well at, in 62 smaller fins. yeah but
1: high volume low uh margin cars you know what i mean I like would, it's yeah
2: right they're not making a ton of money per profit they're also they're not selling a, a ton of cars by standard sake but 63 and 64 they continue the same path just those those compact style cars. And then Abernathy kind of shifts the focus of the company. And they're now targeting larger, more profitable per unit cars. So the Ambassador line is perceived to be negative of like the Rambler's economy image. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. So sales for the ambassador are are really, they're doing well. So 18,600 units in 64 jumps all the way to 64,000 in in 65 for just because I know this number off the top of my head for 1963, Buick launches the Riviera. It's their first year. It is literally Bill Mitchell's like, we are going to take European sleek styling and we're going to put it in an American luxury car. They sold 40,000 units in the first year on the dot. So that's 63, and that is their most expensive, most luxurious, not the car that is like the Sabre, which is just a, a ton of production. So for Rambler to go from 186 in '64 up to 64,000 in '65, that's a significant amount. I mean, that's what? That's another. That's 60% more volume mm-hmm. being churned out. So. They're running this and in 66, they went over 71,000. However, all the costs from developing new cars and engines meant that their bottom line and securing this capital continue to ramp up production and ultimately turn a profit. Those margins are shrinking and it's starting to catch up with, hey, our sales are increasing from a revenue standpoint, but we're still not really making well, any yeah, money at all.
1: This is a common issue with AMC and and smaller automotive automotive manufacturers in general is the working capital to be able to compete. Like if you try to step out of your lane and try to go against the big three, you're going to have to pay so much money to be able to get to the point where you can produce to actually compete. And, you know, we're talking about the ambassador here, which again, is their big, their flagship, their luxury vehicle. Uh, Part of the reason they had to shift some of the focus of production to that was because the big three, you know, Chrysler, Chevy, Ford, they started to, Chrysler, GM, Ford, sorry, they started to envision and see and introduce the small car market now too. So the niche market that they had where they were the ones offering the cheap economy car, well, now you had, you know, Chevy doing the same thing and you had Ford doing the same thing and Chrysler doing the same thing. So now they had to kind of change their production model, which again leads to them having to make all these changes where they can't sustain the working capital to do so just to stay competitive in the market, which is how these big companies have kind of routinely squashed the little guy and made sure that they've kept you know, a pretty strong firm grip on their their share of the market.
2: For sure. And I mean, just some numbers to put it into context. So if you're looking at like the first half of 1966, so the Rambler, the Ambassador, et cetera, they're you know well into a swing of their peak production. <laughs> their first six months, their sales dropped twenty percent, and they reported a six-month loss of, in the first half of 1966 of 4.2 million dollars on sales totaling just under 480 million.
1: Which again is crazy. You're selling a lot of cars. You're doing well, you know, from the perspective of being out there and you know being a part of the market but you just can't sustain it because you can't compete with the prices that the big guys get it at you can't compete at what they're getting their material for um you know if they're getting huge bulk orders compared to your much smaller orders your production costs are insane your dealership uh costs are insane it just they do well and they still can't survive
2: yeah so Abernathy who's pulling I mean in general right he's pulling the right strings in terms of what the market's demanding, what consumers want. The infrastructure clearly isn't there. And the chairman of the board, Robert B. Evans, has to subsequently invest $2 million of his own money to help boost the stock because it's selling for 60% of the company's network, net worth. It's not going well. He becomes like the largest shareholder essentially and uh, eventually replaces a, a the chairman of the board at the time, Richard Cross. Sorry, I excluded the point that Evan's investing his own money is how he gains chairman. So, I mean, say what you want about that again. Don't know if that is the best business move. Just, hey, I, I have the most stock, so therefore I am now going to lead this company from the financial side. So no,
1: well, becomes- without, his, without his contribution, I mean, it's a very strong possibility that they wouldn't have been able to maintain, have their doors open. So it's, you know, lesser two evils kind of.
2: Yeah, and it goes really well because uh, by, you know, the third quarter ending in September 30th, 1966, they record a loss of $12,648,000. That's before the tax credits and deferring some tax assets, of course. So in the uh, the face of all this, Mr. Abernathy retires. In quotes. Retires. Yeah. And Evans resigns. All quotes, yeah. So that lasted for approximately six to seven months. His two million dollars. I wonder if he ever saw that back. Did he ever regain his input?
1: Who knows? I mean, it all it all depends on if he kept those shares, and then once the buyout happened, you know, twenty years later, and stock price jumped through the roof. Who so, knows?
2: do we want to – I really consider this like phase three of of ownership or leadership. Do you want to cover anything else prior to 1967? Again, we're not focusing on some of the specific cars. That's going to be in a follow-up episode.
1: Correct? Yeah. Yes, it will be. Yeah. And we're going I to go into some some
2: stuff with Rambler, with Ambassador, with, you know, as we get into the Javelin here.
1: Yeah. We'll move through each one of those cars in, in a chronological order where we get to actually talk a little bit in depth about different production years, different production models. Uh, some of our favorites, stuff like that. But as far as a historical perspective of what's happening, I think we've covered it pretty well. So I think that moves us again into the third phase of ownership.
2: Which, like, it probably coincides because the, the cars during this generation are what we are going to be most passionate when we talk about. I mean, obviously the AMX is something that you and I both really like. AMC Motors were really underrated, Mm -hmm. As they get into the muscle car era, but really this third generation Hudson blood comes back in. So if you take Roy Chapin, who was the Hudson co-founder from the first generation uh, of that before they became AMC, his son, Roy Chapin Jr. Takes over as CEO of AMC and together uh, with a guy by the name of William Lundberg, who takes over as board board chairman of the board. The two of them create a plan to take charge and revitalize the company. Chapin hires Dick Teague, who is a really well-known designer and developed several vehicles from just like common stamping. So now the focus really is economizing how they produce cars. They're trying to cut down production costs, make more on the bottom line. And ultimately, it turns out some really good-looking cars in the process.
1: Mm-hmm. Unique-looking cars, too, especially for that area.
2: Yeah. And, you know, also like prices and costs were cut across the board from anything that you would see on a balance sheet. Ends up producing not only sporty cars, but also really good engines. Uh, when you look at like 1968, American Motors becomes known for the Javelin and AMX models. It, it really turns around quickly. What I think is more important to talk about, again, we are going to get into 68, 69, the Javelin, the AMX, some of their other cars. but. The purchase to, again, keep growing and buying Kaiser's Jeep Utility Vehicle Operations in 1970 to complement the existing passenger car business is a really strategic and smart move.
1: It is, but the intention behind buying the Jeep Utility Operations was actually to get their, the bus brand, wasn't it? It was – they wanted it for the uh, the large hauling.
2: Yeah, the um, utility side market, of it, right?
1: Yeah. So,
2: yeah. So, so like, Kaiser at this point, I believe, owns AM General, who – or AM General shortly joins thereafter. I, I don't remember exactly how it works, but we just covered them last show with the Hummer. Uh, it's all it's, – it's a complementing business in the sense of, like, AMC at this point in the 70s is going to ride the success of the Hornet, the Javelin, the Gremlin is going to be introduced, Matador, Pacer, like all these different passenger cars that are sporty and economy focused. And then you have the utility business. So, yeah, like if you're getting on a metropolitan bus in New York City in 1972 or 73, it's ultimately going to AMC's pocket in terms of the profit Mm -hmm. with the acquisition of Kaiser. Yeah. What they don't realize, Jeeps become, you know, I mean that's the start of the SUV, right? And they get to see some of that initial success through the 70s and early 80s. Well, and
1: and not only did they get the domestic um, civilian market share of the Jeep hold, they also got their their line of military Jeeps, the M15 ones, and their the postal Jeeps, you know, because. During this time, the late 60s, early 70s, uh, Jeep had a contract or Kaiser or Willys Overland or Kaiser or AMC, whichever company held it at that time. They had a contract for the uh, post office vehicles. So, again, you know, it's – they picked up Jeep. What we most car enthusiasts, you know, think of is we think of the CJs and stuff like that, you know.
2: Wagoneer, all that
1: stuff. What they were looking at, it was the long-term contract holds of uh, military contracts, your postal contract, and your uh, passenger buses.
2: Yeah, so essentially what happens is Chapin sends his uh, vice president for manufacturing, Jerry Myers, down to check out all the Kaiser Jeep factories. Essentially, everyone in top management at American Motors is like, no, we're not doing this. This makes no sense. But Chapin says, well, I run the company. I'm going to purchase the entire Jeep operations, including the the two contracts you just mentioned, the military Jeeps and the postal Jeeps, for $70 million and mm-hmm. gamble on what he thinks will complement the passenger car market.
1: And, and there was ultimate. no competition
2: exactly. in the big three. There was that's,
1: literally that's no – you had light trucks. You, know, you had – well, I mean I guess at that point like Chevys and Fords really didn't have like F100s and stuff, really weren't a light truck. But you had no small SUVs, uh, which, you know, the Jeep uh, or small trucks, you know, there's no S10s running around or or anything like that. So, yeah, you had pretty much the foothold in the market with guaranteed contracts to back a certain percentage of your production.
2: Yeah, and they smartly spin off the the military and special products divisions as AM General Products Division, which becomes AM General.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Hummer. So – Roy Chapin, founder of Hummer, is how I would like to put it. <laughs> but just kidding. So, that's the Jeep market. That's how they're, you know, if you look at like one of the the flagships for 1970 and beyond for AMC, the Jeep, you have Hornet and you have Gremlin. Do you want to talk about Hornet and Gremlin? Or do you just no. want to kind of breeze on by?
1: We can talk about them briefly, just uh let me get a couple more things in about Uh, the Jeep merger real quick. Uh, Jeep wasn't doing well at this time anyway. So part of the reason that this was viewed, you know, by the chair or I'm sorry, by the board as this really wasn't a great idea is because they, Jeep had been losing money for like a decade leading up to this. So it wasn't like they had a super profitable business. Um, However, it did with the Jeep production facilities and uh, the ability to go to simplified vehicles like they had uh, and their production lines, they were able to utilize the fact that they now had more production facilities that they could, you know, turn on more vehicles, continue, and then ultimately develop the M998 Humvee. So, there you go. There you go. We can talk about the Hornet and Gremlin very briefly. I do want to get into the Gremlin uh, just because of how unique it is at least looking. I want to talk about that a little more in depth in the next episode, but we can go ahead and talk about them a little bit here.
2: Yeah. I think what's most important to talk about is the, the production numbers, right? And how that ultimately ties into the business and making, or what we will find out not making money. So really, if you look at from 1970 to 1978, just putting that all in one bucket, that compact piece, For Hornet and Gremlin, they produced, like, 670,000 units. And by the time production ended, specifically for – I'm sorry, 670,000 was for Gremlin. So if you want to talk about them, go ahead. If not, we can keep on breezing in.
1: Well, the Gremlin, I mean, just the one thing we'll talk about today is that the Gremlin was North America's first subcompact car. I mean, it's – AMC had a lot of good ideas. They had a lot of good execution as well. You know, the – Their engines, like we talked about, and we're going to continue to talk about, kind of as we move forward with the Jeeps a little bit, fantastic. The way they uh, decided to simplify their production line, fantastic. They started the subcompact market uh, to compete against outside, you know, foreign, Japanese, German, stuff like that, Uh, British at the time, subcompact cars. It just didn't work. I mean – And we'll talk about that in a little more depth on the next episode.
2: Yeah. And if you take the other, the Hornet, right, which would be it's, I mean, they're not the same, but they shared very similar platforms. By the time the Hornet becomes, it to exist. It's AMC's best-selling passenger car since the Rambler with 860,000 units sold by end of 1977. Mm -hmm. So they made a lot. I mean, that's, you're averaging, what, uh, 105,000, 110,000 for eight years, 107 something. I don't know. I don't do math. And we're not a math podcast. <laughs> All
1: right, moving
2: it's on. Breezing on through the, the mid-70s. Um, so if you look at like, just fast forwarding a little bit, the Matador is another car that replaces the Rebel in 1971. It uh, used some funky uh ad campaigns it was uh awarded the LAPD uh, cruiser contract it's a you know fairly recognizable car and it uh, ultimately is really that third bridge in terms of like you have the subcompacts you have the Jeep division you have the Matador
1: how you long also, did the Matador have the 3 they years they had the the police contract
2: yeah 72 I to didn't... 75
1: I haven't done any research yet on the Matador itself because I know you did. Um, so I actually didn't know that.
2: It, yeah, it, it replaced the satellite. So, uh, I mean, Look. I don't know how many they produced for the LAPD in those three years, but some recognition at least, right? Mm-hmm. So, the Ambassador, the Matador, the Gremlin, the Hornet, the Jeep, those are your five pillars. And that takes them through the mid-70s, which uh, doesn't go well. I mean, the Ambassador was like stretched seven inches. It's as big as ever. in the, the ARAB oil embargo uh, sparks gasoline rationing. So that doesn't really help much. Sales basically fall off. And uh, it's discontinued in 1974. Matador would be the only full-size offering at that point. So the Ambassador was the longest- tenured production vehicle uh going back to nash being from 1927 to 1974 and i use the same model name which again be the longest continually continuously used nameplate for that industry fast forward again another three years and it's what i called the beginning of the end
1: yeah and so in that period between what you just said so from 74 to 78 um Okay. So the market share had been falling pretty significantly uh, in the early 70s. It was never gained. No. And at its best in 74, it was at 3.8%. By 1978, it was 1.2%. And the only reason AMC's doors were open at all was because of AM General, uh, Jeep, and the buses and the government contracts were literally the only profitable portion of the company. And that was the whole reason they kept it afloat.
2: Yeah, Time Magazine crushes them in 1977. Breaking news was like, hey, we're reporting that American Motors has lost $73.8 million in the previous two fiscals. Banks have agreed to extend them essentially that amount in a tax or in a credit, um, which then expired. And stockholders haven't received a dividend in three years. Pacer sales did not match expectations. However, they did note that the record Jeep sales, like you just mentioned, the uh, backlog of of specifically AM General buses, but also Mm -hmm. the other contracts that they still held, was the only thing keeping them afloat and potentially profitable.
1: So, Yeah, and if you compare the 1960s sales figures, well, profitability figures to the 1970s, they were down 30%. Decade to decade, um, and that was with the the profitable things that you just talked about: AM General, the buses, jeeps, military contracts. Still exactly. down, you know, thirty percent. It's just obviously non-sustainable, which is we're going to lead into you know the end of essentially AMC, which is where the French automaker Renault comes in in nineteen
2: seventy nine. Well, so, technically, so well, they that, became
1: an investor early on, right?
2: Yeah, yeah, I mean they came in as an investor in 1978, but just right before that in February of 77, the Time article comes out, in October Roy retires and Jerry Myers, Gerald C. Myers, who is the one who kind of signed off on the the Kaiser deal, he was the one again who was, you know, boots on the ground looking at factories and stuff. He takes over as chairman and CEO. So he's he's running the show baby. But like you said, Renault is the reason that AM or well yeah that AMC does have any type of like nameplate face in the 80s mm-hmm. they we'll get to where where it is but on March 31st 1978 they announce a sweeping agreement for the joint manufacturer and distribution of cars and trucks that would achieve benefits for both parties i mean it literally did nothing like a month later AMC announces that it's halting their production of standard urban transit buses with 4,300 being sold by its subsidiary over a period of three years, and they had these backlog of orders that they were not able to fulfill. So I don't know what AMC did with the money that Renault gave them, but it did not go to the, the AM General Product Division. And the bus well, was a profitable division.
1: Yeah. And what's weird is we know what Renault did with the money, or with their uh, the rights that they gained from the investment, which was the availability to sell Jeep to European markets. Exactly. Uh, Which they began in Belgium and France and essentially kind of took over like similar to the big three here. They started taking over smaller independent importers um, and completely just dominated the market. Again, because the Jeep at that time really had no competition. So if you were the one who had the rights to import it, you were going to make a killing. It's just AMC couldn't get out of their own way on the rest of their market share; (laughs) They couldn't actually make it profitable.
2: Back stateside, Sam, the EPA in 1978 says, hey, uh, we're going to recall all of your cars produced from 1976 and on, uh, except the ones that already had California emissions, uh, you know, just a total of 270,000 vehicles, plus another 40,000 75 and 76 Jeeps with a correction of a faulty pollution control system. And then I have notes, like what idiots deserved it? <laughs> their total cost for this recall was upwards of $3 million, which was more than they made the entire quarter previous. It's just like, talk about adding insult to injury.
1: You can't catch a break, AMC.
2: That's the Volkswagen recall in, what, 2015, 2014. Remember that, the the diesel recall?
1: Oh, yeah. When the, they were just the totally lying on their
2: pollution. It was everything. It was Jetta's. But Volkswagen could sustain a hit like that.
1: Well, yeah, uh, they have a big enough market share everywhere else. I mean, they have other companies underneath of them. They're okay.
2: Yeah, so uh, if you look at fiscal year end, September 30th, 1978, AMC loses just an estimated $65 million on its conventional, aka non-Jeep sales, which is just crazy. Yet Jeep sales helped the company turn an overall profit of 36.7 million dollars on just under well just over two and a half billion of total sales like their passenger car division was so bad it was like trotting out a high school football team against an nfl team yet the nfl team of the jeeps i don't really know where this is going but essentially the jeeps just crushed it.
1: it it makes you wonder so much like if you look at it analytically you're like okay why the hell didn't you just dump the passenger car market just be like, look, Probably we're no Jeeps now, baby. Dump it. It doesn't matter. They're not profitable. Yeah, you're gonna take a loss in the first year. You switch your production over to just doing Jeeps. They were actually profitable, and they had contracts from the government to be able to sustain it. And why would you not? Well,
2: Jeep takes a hit anyway. As uh, you move into 1981, there's this this regulation by the U.S. government that any four-wheel drive vehicle needs to average 15 miles per gallon. Mm-hmm. Which the Jeeps up to that point were not doing. So huge engineering initiative, right, to get over that hump. And really, if you look at 1980, American Motors cars and, and Jeeps subsequently receive a new rust-proofing process called the zibart or ZBART, depending on how you pronounce it. Factory rust protection. So there's like screw it. We don't care about the regulations. Our cars are not going to rust out in five years. We're going to take that one step further and guarantee it as part of a buyer protection plan. And we're also going to start using plastic inner fenders, galvanized steel and exterior body panels, aluminized trim screws, uh, a deep dip literally up to the passenger cars like window lines and epoxy-based primer. And uh, we're going to back it up. Like I said, we're just going to gloop on undercoating and bang, buy our cars. I have no idea if it worked out.
1: I don't think it did. I mean, I don't think there was a, a chance to see if it was proven if it worked out or not.
2: No. So, I have a note called the last hurrah. Can I talk about that?
1: Go for it, Lou. Because
2: this is one weird car that I really like. The AMP Eagle. Yeah, car. <laughs> I really like the eagle. I mean, hey, it's a you know, it's kind of ugly, but it's four-wheel drive versions. Yeah, um, but
1: most most amc cars like if you really look at them are kind of ugly oh yeah i know even like i love the javelin it's kind of it has ugly qualities to it
2: so there was the spirit the concord and and the collective line was called the eagle and like you could literally buy an eagle some of them were uh known in a way as like crossover suvs like the first variation of them because they were like small compact hatchback type vehicles but they had four-wheel drive
1: well yeah four-wheel drive is really what gave them that crossover SUV uh, you know, name. Yeah, I mean, you can literally, they were,
2: and again, we'll talk about the Eagle a little bit more, I think, on the next pod, or we might just totally omit it, who knows, uh, to be determined. And on next week's episode, <laughs> just kidding. Uh, it, it, was, it was innovative. Like, it definitely, I mean, not only can you get wood grain, but it's four-time, or four, full-time four-wheel drive, it has, uh, you know, that's really it. Sales weren't there. They, they were there initially, and then they were gone. Um, it had full-time four-wheel drive.
1: Yeah, I mean, it, it's cool for that, but it's just like everything else, AMC did in passenger cars. It was like novelty, but that's it. No substance.
2: Yeah, no, it was discontinued in 1983. It didn't make it anywhere.
1: So after 1983, Lou... Uh, let's talk about the most important impl- implication of the AMC company you know, for now, which would be the introduction of the line of the Cherokee and the Wagoneer models in 83 uh, for the 84 model year of Jeep.
2: Editor's note, it was not discontinued in 1983. The Spirit and Concord two-wheel drive versions were. The Eagles survived. And it breathed fire into the American roads until 1987 <laughs> when it was subsequently discontinued. I have no idea what you just said.
1: OK, so back to what I just said. So the most beneficial portion of the American Motors legacy was, in my mind, the the Jeeps. So in 1983, for the 1984 model year, the Cherokee and the Wagoneer were introduced and essentially – they were the ones who um created the suv market or i don't know or defined it i'm not really sure but there was a, you know like you said with the, the eagle it was somewhat an suv um but these two were like the, the first of that breed
2: yeah i think it i think you could definitely say that because it it pioneered like they were the wagoneer and the cherokee were both smaller versions of yes yeah pre-jeeps right like the Grand Wagoneer of the 1968, 69, 70 models, once again, most of those were Kaiser, were massive vehicles, basically like trucks, only closed off like an SUV would look. But the Wagoneer and Cherokee were smaller in size and they were specifically targeted to passenger car, con- like commuting markets, not utilitarian of any type, although they had four wheel drive, et cetera.
1: Mm hmm. So, Lou, how much more do you want to get into this? Because I feel like we're probably going to talk about, I would say, what, the 84 through 98 Jeeps? Yeah, 97. We're probably no, going to talk about. I mean,
2: 87 technically because AMC dies in 87. The Jeep lives on its Chrysler, though.
1: No, I mean, in our next episode, we're going to talk about that era. Oh, of specifically, the- yeah. yeah. Those the, were actual right? vehicles, right? Uh, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah, sure. so we'll talk about those in a little more depth. Uh, next time so Lou do you want to take us into the uh the final nail in the coffin for AMC
2: oh you mean the topic that I have, and they are dead that would be the one cool so um yeah essentially Renault at this point right if you just take the 80s like they're controlling everything however they're also producing the only reason that amc is surviving like the the four liter engine and the 2.5 that we're, we spoke about uh they're Renault products i mean Renault designed them in tandem with amc but that that four liter developed an outstanding reputation like we mentioned and chrysler ended up retaining it after they buy out the jeep market from Renault and amc so they end up dying because a, a man the uh a man named bessie dies um <laughs>
1: That was and Renault's I, president at the yes. – yeah. Yep, so. <laughs> just to be clear. I, I know you like his funny name, but just to yeah. be clear what he did.
2: So a guy uh, named Raymond Levy, Levi. Levi, I don't know. Raymond, he takes over. He uh, Renault does not have the best employee relations at this time. They're not a, a real reputable company to work for. So he starts repairing that and ultimately sets out to divest – the remaining stock in American motors, which is like 46.1% of total shares. So by 1986, American motors has lost $91.3 million. I mean, the fact that you own half of those losses really sucks. So well, what's crazy, sorry. it's crazy. like,
1: we've talked about how many different years now. And we're like, I don't know. I think there's three years that they've made money. Maybe like, I don't know, six total since 1954. Yeah. Like every year we talk about they're losing money.
2: And Chrysler's already in agreements with AMC to produce these these M-body chassis chassis for their rear-drive large cars from '86 to '88. So that kind of fueled a lot of rumors, like, hey, you know, we're probably going to end up buying out the remaining stop. Uh, so head of manufacturing for Chrysler, Stephen Stephan Scharf says the existing relationship with AMC is going to uh, be a competitor car, and we're going to start facilitating negotiations to acquire and make it part of our own, which was really only the Jeep Grand Cherokee, is what they wanted.
1: Yeah. Well, that's what Lee Iacoco wanted, our boy. Right.
2: Uh, which was just for the record, was not being produced at the time. It was all design uh, and prototype stuff. There was no Grand Cherokee out until 1992.
1: Yeah, so but they wanted a the prototype, and you know they didn't really care about the passenger cars. They wanted they wanted the uh, AMC slash Renault engine. They wanted the ability to be able to design and produce the Grand Cherokee, and pretty much brought up or bought up a crappy company to do so.
2: Yeah, so on March 9th, nineteen eighty-seven, two days before my birthday, they except I was born in you were not later born then. two days anyway. before what would become my birthday. Uh, Chrysler agrees to buy Renault's remaining share, plus, uh, you know, their ownership in everything proprietary in terms of Jeep uh, for a total of about one and a half billion dollars, which is a little over three and a half billion dollars in today's dollars. And American Motors becomes the Jeep Eagle division of Chrysler. Jeep stay or Eagle stays, baby. Six more months. Well, what's 12 months? Nine more months. Uh Yeah, they
1: are to the very end of 87.
2: But, I mean, Chrysler also got some cool stuff, like uh, AMC had a world-class new manufacturing plant in Ontario, which gave Iacocca the opportunity to increase his production uh, really at a fire sale price because U.S. dollars to Canadian dollars at that point were significantly different. So that's really it, man. I mean, they died a slow and painful death from 19... 74
1: to 1987. Yeah, and it's it you know kind of stinks we're doing it this way because we can't talk about some of the cool things. Um, you know it's a little disappointing to talk about all the bad things about a company before we can talk into their redeeming features. Uh, but you'll have to wait till next week to hear about their cool stuff, and we'll definitely go into that in a little more detail. Uh, Lou, do you have any party notes or, um. Feelings or anything like that on AMC as a brand?
2: History isn't always fun. It's not always kind. This company was doomed from the start once George Mason passed away. I think why they were born was a good idea, and it may or may not have worked. We, I mean, we have no idea. I, I don't think Packard existed after 1955, so no idea if that would have been able to compete again at that luxury level.
1: But... It, Studebaker didn't last much longer anyway either.
2: Yeah, 65, 66, whatever it was. Um, 67, I don't really remember. But, hey, I mean, what AMC was able to still produce, there are some really cool cars that we'll be able to talk about that are fun and exciting and you know highly collectible today. So the Jeep division itself, like, I feel if you went to – a European country or just any country and said, Hey, what's the most iconic American car you could think of? Like people are either going to say Ford model T or they're going to say Jeep. So, so yeah, I mean, we'll talk about some of the cool stuff in next episode and until then, RIP AMC.
1: All right. So with that, that was the history of the American motors corporation Join us again next time where we discuss some of their most iconic cars, some of their craziest cars, and some of the long-lasting impacts, not of their uh, business model or anything like that, but of their actual vehicles themselves. For Lou and Sam, we'll catch you next time.
0: We are back to Studio A. A big thank you to Mr. Genakopoulos and Mr. Farringer. Guys, great job on the deep dive into American Motors the research and everything you put into that. Really enjoyed it. I learned an incredible amount, and I'm sure our listeners did too. To everyone listening, our Cubers, our friends, thank you for listening in, and stay tuned because I know the guys are working hard on a second and perhaps even a third part to this series. Uh, more to learn for all of us. Also at Cars Carla, Carlisle, we're very excited this year about trying to do new things and, and to improve the overall experience of the weekly podcast. And speaking of experience, we have partnered with TheExtremeExperience.com. That is T-H-E-X-T-R-E-M-E-X-P-E-R-I-E-N-C-E.com in creating an opportunity for you, our listeners, to participate in the sweepstakes where we're going to have a drive supercar sweepstakes. We'll have more information on that package for each winner will be three laps in a supercar, if available of their choice as well as a ride-along in the lead car, which is a Dodge Charger Hellcat Y-body, That also includes the base insurance coverage. So we're very excited about that in our partnership with Extreme Experience. Extreme Experience, if you don't know much about them, they make supercars accessible to everyone. They travel over to 30 racetracks around the country with a fleet of supercars that people can drive and enjoy. Uh, everything from Porsches to Lambos to McLarens, Ferraris, and more. Anyone over the age of 18 with a valid driver's license can drive. The ride-alongs for those that would like to participate right away are for those ages 12 and up, and those start at $69. And to be behind the wheel, those drives start at $199. So there are no limiters, no governors, and you can take the car at full speed. In fact, uh, I've done it in a, in a Lambo Huracan. You have an instructor on board, and they walk you through it. So wanted to. Uh, Get you thinking more about that we'll have more information here in the coming weeks and months let's pull it into the proverbial garage and hear this week's trivia question and answer if you recall sam and lou had given me a trivia question it was roy chapin jr took over as ceo of amc in 1967. what company did roy's father help co-found that eventually merged into amc the answer is the hudson motor car company Roy's father, Roy Sr., helped co-found Hudson along with Joseph L. Hudson. The name Hudson came from the latter gentleman's surname. In fact, Mr. Hudson was a department store entrepreneur from the Detroit area. And the Hudson Motor Car Company was indeed formed by eight Motor City businessmen on February 20th, 1909. My friends, we are at the end of this week's show. Be sure to come back and tune in for next week's episode. We will be here and looking for you. Because together it's all about car community, car culture. For now, I'll say drive well, be well, take care.